like I said, this semester we're looking at the book of Judges. And we said every single week that the book of Judges is a series of stories uh, that are written with the intent of showing God's people God's grace and to therefore call them to faith and obedience. And if you've been with us this semester, we've seen this progression, this cycle, this downward spiral happening over and over and over, and, and the, the, the hinges are now officially coming off, because we come into now the, the, the final rotation, as it were, and we're going to look at the last judge that God brings on the scene, the man Samson. And he is the worst judge in the Bible. He, he is completely morally and spiritually bankrupt. He's completely wretched. And, you know, he never actually leads Israel into any sort of military campaign. And yet he has the most amount of press time in the whole book of Judges. Four whole chapters dedicated to Samson. So we're going to spend a few weeks looking at him. And why don't we go ahead and do that now? We're going to read a little section out of Judges 13 and then uh, the bulk of 14. I know that's a lot of words in front of you, so um, just buckle up. This is God's word to us tonight from the book of Judges. 13 verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now to verse uh, chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. (laughs) It's my favorite verse of this whole passage. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. So his father went down to see the woman. And Samson made a feast there, as was customary for bridegrooms. When he appeared, he was given 30 companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer... You must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. And he replied, 
Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle to us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? (laughs) She cried the whole seven days of the feast. (laughs) So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. And before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, Well, what's sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you have not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. Let me pray, and then we'll um, look at it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, um, what do we do with passages like this? We are desperate and have no hope of understanding, one, what this means, or two, how in the world this is at all relevant to our lives, unless your Holy Spirit comes and softens our hard hearts and opens up our eyes and uh, unclogs our ears. And so that would really be our prayer in these next few moments. We, we need to hear from you. We do not need to hear from Matt Howell in these moments. So please come and uh, be our teacher. And we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I eat most of my meals nowadays at, or my lunch, most of my lunches at Central. And you know, if you leave the Union and go to Central, those big panes of glass, as you're walking up to Central... I know you do it, because I do it. You check yourself out in the, in the mirror, right? Because gla- that glass can function just like a mirror. You walk by and you kind of glance at it and uh, you know, make sure your hair's doing what it needs to do. Make sure that you're looking good. Functions like a mirror. But you know, if you're ever inside of Central eating and somebody tries to come up I don't know why those doors are always locked, but they're always locked, and uh, you know people inevitably come up to it and put their hand, you know, put their face up to the window, <laughs> trying to look through it to get somebody's attention to be like, "Can you open the the door, please?" Instead of having to walk all the way around, same glass, same pane of glass, functions like a window, you can look through it. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because Samson functions the same exact way. He is both a a mirror and a window. If you look at him, you see yourself. If you look through him, you see Jesus. And really, those are the two points that I want to explore and unpack with you tonight. How Samson is a mirror and how Samson is a window. So we're just going to look at these one at a time. Samson as a mirror. When I was uh, younger, junior high or high school, I guess, um, I was trying to tell the story to my wife and... um, I can't really, I, 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 would, I was in my mother's bathroom. I don't know why I was in my mother's bathroom, but I have this memory of me being in my mother's bathroom, which I know sounds weird, but um, <laughs> there I was, 
And I remember that she had, you know, the big kind of normal bathroom mirror, but on her little table thing there was the up-close vanity mirror where she would, I guess, do her makeup and, like, it had lights around it. There were, like, 180-watt light bulbs on it. And I remember being in in her bathroom, looking at myself in the mirror thinking, I look pretty good. And then when you look in the vanity mirror, you're like, holy crap. Do I really have this many blackheads on my nose? Am am I this disgusting in this mirror? Apparently, when Samson, when you look at him, he is a vanity mirror. And if you are willing to take a look at him and actually see yourself, you're going to be made uncomfortable. You're going to be shocked by how ugly and uncomfortable with you you really are. And so if you are willing to take a look into the vanity mirror that is Samson, I want to highlight six ways that he's just like you and me. Six ways that he's a mirror reflecting us back to us. We're just going to look at these one at a time. Here's the first one. He is driven by sensuality. He's driven by sensuality. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 14, it says that he went to Timnah, which is the name of the town, and he saw a Philistine woman, and he wanted to marry her. He saw her. That's it. It it even repeats the same idea in verse 2. It it emphasizes that he goes to his parents and says, I have seen a Philistine woman. Now go get her for me as my wife. In fact, we we find out he doesn't even speak to her until verse 7, which is much later in the story. He sees her, he thinks she's hot, and he wants her. And that's the end of the story. Now, I, I said this to you last semester, if you were here, but I'll say it again. But there are many of you that come into a room like this, and if you're interested in looking for a romantic, special someone, you immediately rule out 95% of the room. Why? Based off of what? Looks. Based purely off of looks. 95% of the room, people that you don't think are are attractive, people are hot, people uh, dress lame, they're immediately ruled out, and you only zero in on the 5% that you think is attractive. And so the question is, is that you? Are you that superficial? Do you, do you examine and evaluate people purely on the basis of looks, on whether or not their body is attractive to you, on whether or not they wear the right clothes for you, and if not, you completely write them off? Are you really that shallow? If so, then you're just like Samson, driven by a lust and just pure external appearances. Here's the second way that he reflects us back to us. Uh, He's disrespectful to his parents. Did you hear the way that he spoke to his parents in verse 2? He says, go get her for me. And then in verse 3, the response of them is, you know, the response of this older, wiser, more mature parental authority. They're like, Samson, she's a Philistine. She, She has a totally different faith, totally different worldview. She is not right for you. Did you see his response to that? It is so rude. He just says, get her for me. She's the right one for me. He bosses his parents around and just flat out dismisses their advice, their, their counsel. You know, he thinks that he understands the world better than, they, better than they do. They just don't get him. Does that sound familiar? You know, I, I know for a lot of us, um, 
you think that your parents are just out of touch with reality and that they're stupid. And sometimes you even take it upon yourself to, to notify them of that. Where they come, you know, they have their advice. You don't even want their advice. don't even want their counsel. And if they volunteer it, you just roll your eyes and think, you know, they don't get you. They don't understand the world as it really is. You have a much better read on reality than they do. Now, for, for you, that may not be you. It may not be your parents, but it may be some form of authority. It may be an older friend, maybe just a mentor, where you're just unteachable. Where anybody's advice, anybody's counsel, you just roll your eyes at. You feel like you, you know the best way to navigate the world. You, you know how to live your life better than anyone else. And so any, any input is just discredited. Here's the third way that he mirrors us back to us. He wants to get more intimate with the very thing that's enslaving him. This is way number three. He wants to get more intimate with the very thing that's enslaving him. Here, let me unpack that for you. If you go to the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1, it says that um, the Philistines were the foreign nation that was oppressing Israel at this time. They had come in and taken over. So what does Samson do? He goes to a Philistine town, sees a Philistine woman, and says, I want to marry her. He wants to get more intimate. He wants to marry the very thing that's enslaving him and killing his people. There are things in your life that are corrosive and enslaving. And you actually want to get more intimate with it. You want to get closer. You want to indulge further in the very thing that's eating your life up from the inside out. Maybe for you that you, you have a, a pet sin that nobody knows about, but in secret, you, you privately uh, nurse it, you privately coddle this sin of yours and, and indulge yourself in it, even though nobody knows. And that very thing, the very thing that you want more of, the thing that you want to be more intimate with, give yourself more to, is the very thing that's trying to kill you. This is a true story. I, a friend of mine told me uh, that he knew of someone that slept with her pet snake. This was not like a little wormy garden snake. This was a massive like boa constrictor. Not in the cage, just half of the bed for me, half of the other bed for the snake. And uh, obviously this, this woman who owned the snake had some issues. And so uh, after a while, she began to find out that the snake was getting sick. And uh, the, you know, it wasn't eating. She would put it in the, in the, in the cage and it wouldn't eat, eat the, the mice or whatever. And so she took it to the vet. And, and after three weeks of basically not eating and the vet asking her questions and diagnosing it, the, the vet pretty much figured out what was going on. He said this, uh, a snake like this will starve itself to make room for a large prey. A snake like that will starve itself to make room for a large prey. That is the image, that is the picture that I want you to have burned into your head. Because what's happening, what's happening in your life and in my life is that the very thing that is threatening to kill you is the very thing that you want to sleep with. The very thing that is threatening to kill you is the very thing that, that you want to get closer with, that you want to marry, that you want to be more intimate with, that you actually want to sleep with. And so the question really is, what is it for you? 
For many of you, I, I, I know it's just pornography. It's just when no one's around, this thing that is corrosive, this thing that wants to destroy my life, I want to be more intimate with. Maybe for you, it's just messing around with your boyfriend or girlfriend. The guilt, the shame, the thing that eats you up, you want to give in to that. Maybe for you, it's um, you just will not check the level of worry and anxiety that bubbles up, and you just let it consume you and dominate you and enslave you, and you will not fight it. You just give in to it. Or maybe for you, it's, it's uh, you just give in to and feed the anger and the self-righteousness and the bitterness that you feel. What is it for you? What is it in your life that you want to get more intimate with, which happens to actually be the very thing that's trying to kill you and enslave you? That's the third thing. Here's the fourth way that Samson mirrors us back to us. He is indulgent. Without going into all the details, uh, Samson and his family, they, they basically give in, and they go down to this town to do this wedding. And it says in verse 10, as they get there, that Samson made a feast, which just seems, you know, very nice. He, he like, made dinner for everyone. That seems nice until you know uh, what the Hebrew word is behind the word feast, which would have been a seven-day drinking party. He basically throws... Uh, a week-long, non-stop keg party. This is over-the-top indulgent, over-the-top self-indulgent. And my guess is, there is some area of your life that it is hard for you to say no to as well. It is hard for you to say no, and so you just indulge. You give in and you indulge. Maybe for you it is alcohol, where you, where you just you give in and you drink and you just don't stop until you pass out. Or something else happens. Maybe for you, it's uh, food. You just cannot stop eating the way that you eat. Maybe it's ice cream. Maybe it's uh, cigarettes. Uh, maybe you indulge yourself on sleep or video games. You know, whatever it is for you, my guess is that there's some aspect of your life that you just indulge in and you don't say no to. And maybe you even feel entitled to it, where you feel like, okay, after a long day, after a hard day of work, I am entitled to coming home and throwing back three or four beers. That's just my right. Or maybe you feel like, okay, after a really hard week, a really rough week, I am entitled to indulging and sleeping 15 hours and waking up at 3 p.m. on Saturday morning, afternoon. Maybe for you, it's, you know, when I get hurt, when someone wounds me, when someone hurts my feelings, I am entitled to indulge in anger and bitterness and to blast that person around my group of friends when they're not around. Maybe your thinking is, you know, I have given, I have given thousands of dollars of tuition to App State. I can indulge and take the little Chick-fil-A sauce packets in Central. <laughs> that you do not say no to, that maybe you even feel entitled to. Here's the fifth way. Here's the fifth way that he mirrors us back to us. He labels people. He labels people. Okay, without going into all the detail, you kind of heard it as we read it. He comes up with this riddle, this basically this brain teaser, and he tells 30 of the Philistine people this brain teaser, and the, kind of the bet is, if you get it right, then uh, I will give you 30 outfits. And if I get it right, you've got to give me 30 outfits. So they can't get the answer right. And so they basically blackmail his fiancée into telling her 
into telling them the answer. So all week long, she's nagging him, tell me the answer, tell me the answer, tell me the answer. Nagging him, nagging him, nagging him. At the end of the week, he gives in, tells her the answer, and she turns right back around and tells them the answer. And they come to him and say, here's the answer to your stupid brain teaser. And what does he say? He loses the bet. He's angry about it. What does he say in verse 18? If you had not plowed with my heifer... You would not have solved my riddle. He's talking about his fiance. This is the day of their wedding. And the language that he uses is just as mean, it's just as insulting in the Hebrew as it sounds in the English. Here, what do we see? Is we see someone who's very, he just does not care about people. He's indifferent, he's calloused, and the people that he's angry at, people that he doesn't like, he, he feels free to use degrading, offensive language to label them. Does that sound familiar? I mean, my guess is um, you're thinking, um, okay, I'm not that callous. I am not that insensitive to people. But the reality is, is that you have labels for people that you don't like. And you know what those labels are. You know what those terms are. For the people that you don't like, either socially or racially or politically or theologically and religiously, you have those labels. And sadly, I do too. Here's the last way that he mirrors us back to us. Is he's just flat out disobedient to God. If you look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 13, right before he's born, it says that he is to be a Nazarite. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you. But in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 6, it talks about this vow called the Nazarite vow, where certain people would be set apart Uh, under this banner called being a Nazarite. And they're set apart by God to do something for God. And basically what that means is they have to abstain from three things. They have to abstain from alcohol. They have to abstain from uh, getting their hair cut. And they have to abstain from, from interacting with a dead corpse. Now we know Samson already is totally cool with drinking alcohol. Uh, we're going to find out in a couple of weeks that he gets his hair cut. And in this story, he interacts with a carcass, that lion corpse thing. He's flat out at every point disobedient to God. I know this is what God wants me to do with my life. I just don't care. Now, for some of you, you're like, okay, yeah, now this one got me. Because you're right, I do not give a rip about what God wants me to do and how he wants me to live my life. But my guess is for most of you, you do. My guess is most of you, you want to be obedient to God, or at least at some level you uh, think you do, or think you are. If you're, if you're a Christian, I think us Christians typically think that what God wants us to do with our life can basically be boiled down into four things that we have to do and four things that we can most likely, you know, we just cannot do. This is the extent of, of what God's law looks like. The four things that we have to do is read the Bible every day, pray, Go to church and be nice. We can't get angry. And the four things that we most we cannot do is to drink, smoke, cuss, and have sex. And we think if we're doing these four things and we're not doing these four things, we're, we're being pretty obedient. And we completely ignore 99.9% of the rest of God's intentions for our lives, which is like forgiving your roommate when they hurt you. Uh, loving the enemies that you have on this campus, serving the poor that are right here in Boone, laying down your life for people that you really don't want anything to do with, moving towards 
the socially awkward and the marginal people, all that stuff, we just kind of shovel away. And in the name of obedience, think we're being obedient, and we've disregarded most of what he really wants from us. So you put all six of those things together, and here's what you have. He is driven by sensuality. He's disrespectful to his parents. He wants to be more intimate with the very thing that's enslaving him. He is indulgent. He labels people, and he's disobedient to God. Do you know who that reminds me of? Me. Matt Howell. And that should remind you of you, too. When you look at Samson, he in many ways functions like a mirror that is glaring. And when you look at him, and if you honestly look at yourself through the mirror, that is him. Your reaction should be, holy crap, I am this ugly. I am this despicable. I am this prideful, this greedy, this lustful, this murderous, this angry, this self-entitled, this messed up. I know you're thinking, I picked a great night to come to RUF this week. We could stop here, and we could all just leave very depressed. But like I said, Samson doesn't just function as a mirror. He actually functions also as a window. When you look at him, you see yourself. But when you look through him, you see Jesus. And let me explain what I mean by that now. When you look through him, you see Jesus. I didn't include all of chapter 13 in your little handout there. But if you read it, it sounds just like the stories that we read at Christmas time. Because what happens is an angel of the Lord comes to this obscure, childless woman and says, you are going to give birth to a son and he is going to deliver his people. He's going to save his people. And there, you know, if you're reading the book of Judges for the first time, there's just so much expectation and hope built into that. Finally, there's this birth announcement. He's the only judge, by the way, where you even get a, get a story about his, his birth, a nativity story. He's the only one. And you have all this expectation, all this hope. Finally, he's set apart by God. He's been given these gifts. He's been given this you know, divine power. Finally, here is someone who can save his people and undo all of the mess that we just see over and over and over and over. But what do we see? He lives his life and his gifts and his power he uses for himself. He uses it for himself. Centuries later, almost identically, an angel of the Lord comes to an obscure childless woman and says, you are going to give birth to a son and he is going to save his people. And his name is going to be Jesus. And he's going to be set apart. He's going to have divine gifts, divine power, divine calling. And so now we have all this expectation again when you finally get to Jesus in the New Testament. Will he be the one that finally saves his people and undoes all of the brokenness and all of the mess that is us? So what do we see? Jesus lives his life. And at one point in his life, uh, he's in the wilderness. He's in the desert fasting for 40 days. So he's hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, look, if you just use your power, if you just use your gifts to make food, then you won't be hungry. So just do it. Just, you're hungry. Obviously, you've been starving for 40 days. Make some food. Use your gifts for yourself. And Jesus doesn't do it. He never, never uses his gifts, uses his power, uses his ability to serve himself. What do we see him doing? He's always using his gifts to serve other people. He's redeeming people, he's, he's healing people, he's feeding people. He's always using his gifts to serve other people. You know, in many ways, if you look at, if you look at Samson, he's kind of like the anti-Messiah. If you look through him, you see what he should have been when you see the person of Jesus. He's basically the negative version of what Jesus is. 
However, there is one way that Samson is exactly like Jesus and how Jesus is exactly like Samson. Jesus, too, wants to marry his enemy. Jesus, too, wants to marry his enemy. By the time you get to Romans chapter 5, Paul says, outside of God's grace, we are his enemy. It uses that strong of language. And and honestly, if you think about it, if you think about everything we just talked about in the first point of, of, honestly, looking at the mirror, you can see why the Bible would say we are his enemy. We're totally godless, totally faithless, totally prideful, angry, mean, self-righteous. We don't want anything to do with him a lot of the time. And so the Bible says, you are his enemy. But God demonstrates, this is Romans chapter 5 again, God demonstrates his unparalleled love by sending his son to bear the punishment on the cross for what his enemies deserve so that he can get you, so that he can get me. Filthy, wretched as we are, he, th- there is a love that is so intense, that is so astounding that it would rather give up his own son than to not get us. The love that is that unparalleled to give up his own son in order to get us, you and me, broken, really messed up people, really messed up people. God wants to embrace. God wants to marry. God wants to actually get closer with. Look, here's a statement. I've been thinking about this sentence. This is a three-word sentence that within the past two weeks has just rocked me in new dimensions. And you can think about this, you can ponder this, you can relish this sentence for the rest of your life and never get to the bottom of it. Here's what it is. God loves sinners. He loves them. He wants to embrace them and marry them. People like me. People like you. People that are this messed up, this twisted, this corrupt. People like us. This is who he wants. This is... It's shocking. The question is, how do you connect to this? How do you get in on his love for people like you and me? How do you get in on it? The reality is, you will never connect to his love. You will never appreciate him. You you will never be transformed by his grace unless you are first willing to look in that mirror and to admit, I am this messed up. No religious pretense. No excuses, no defenses. Just looking at yourself in a raw, honest way and say, yeah, I am, I am, my heart is this black. I am this twisted. You will never connect to his love. You will never be transformed. You will never have joy unless you're willing to do that first. Now, my guess is, if you're anything like me, you look in that mirror, you have one of two reactions. First reaction that you're probably having is some form of false humility. You know, if you're a Christian, you're prone to do this probably just like I am, of... You say that you're a sinner. You say that you're messed up. Of course I'm broken. Because you kind of know that that's what you have to say. That's like the right Christian answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. I need Jesus. But deep down, we resist that. Deep down, we do not want to embrace the reality that we really are sinners. Because if we did, if we really embraced it, I think we would confess our sin in much more radical ways and we wouldn't hide it. Um, when people confront us, we, would got, we wouldn't get nearly as defensive and make excuses. We would actually embrace the charges that are leveled against us. Look, I'm telling you, you will never connect to his love and to his grace unless you're first willing to look at this and say, yeah, I, I have to admit, I'm this prideful, I'm this greedy, I'm this lustful, I, I'm this twisted on the inside. Which means that you have to start being honest about some really deep, rea- uh, deep realities. Are you willing to admit 
that your best quiet time needs forgiveness. Your best quiet time needs a savior for it because it is stained with sin. Are you willing to admit that your best mission trip and all of your mission trips that you've ever been on and the best worship experience that you've ever had needs atonement? It needs blood covering it. It needs forgiveness. Do you realize that my preaching right this second needs forgiveness? It is stained with sin and it is stained with pride and it is stained with selfishness. Are we willing to take that look and not do the false humility thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm messed up. But to honestly look and to say, yeah, every, the good parts about me, the bad parts about me, everything about me needs Jesus. That's probably the first reaction you're having. The other reaction you may be having is, okay, I'm just going to do better and I'm just going to try harder. In other words, you can look at that vanity mirror and see yourself and you can see how much you lie and you can say, okay, I'm just going to try to tell the truth a lot more. Or you can say, you know, I see how much I cuss, my language is filthy, I'm going to try to clean it up. Or you can look into that mirror and you say, oh, I just drink way too much, I'm going to try to drink more responsibly and more uh, in moderation. You could do that. You, you could clean up your act and be a better person and it have nothing to do with Jesus. You can go from good you, you, you can go from bad you to good you, all you want. Just don't call that Christianity. You can call that any religion you want, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is you coming, as messed up as you are, nothing in your hands but your sin in Jesus. Jesus is better than you being better, as one pastor put it. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' um, uh, preaching uh, sermons, <laughs> he says this, and I've been thinking about this for the past few weeks. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he, when he says mourn, he's not talking about someone who's been mourning over like the loss of a friend. He says, he's thinking about when you look at your sin and you mourn over it and you grieve over it and you cry over it, that's when you are blessed. And what he means by blessed is not like you're going to get like money, financial help. What he means by the word blessed is that you're going to be happy. Jesus is basically saying happy are those who cry over their sin. That doesn't make any sense apart from grace. That makes no sense unless you are willing to look at how messed up you are, mourn over it, cry over it, and have a Savior who is big enough to come to you and wrap his arms around you and embrace you and forgive you and cleanse you. That is when you get the joy. That is when you get the happiness. When you realize I am embracing how messed up I really am. And to know that that does not sabotage his love for me. But that's actually what connects me to it in a deeper way. To appreciate it to glory in it. If you see your sin as this big, just a little bit, then that's how big you're going to see Jesus. He's that big because he's, he's that big of a savior to cover my small sin. But when you honestly look in the mirror and you see how messed up you are at every corner, Jesus becomes that much more amazing and glorious that he would love someone like me. I said this uh, earlier this semester, and I'll wrap up with this. Catherine and I, my wife Catherine and I, were really into the show Breaking Bad. And it's a story about a man named Walter White who has a dead-end job, who is moderately depressed. He has a son that's disabled, and he has severe lung cancer. And fortunately... He has a friend that's very wealthy and very generous and willing to pay for all of his chemo treatments. 
But the thing about Walter White is that he hates feeling desperate. And so instead of actually giving in and letting his friend cover his payments, what he does, even though he's at the end of his rope, is that he lies, he manipulates, he controls, and he starts cooking and selling crystal meth on the side. He hates feeling desperate. Even though all the odds are stacked against him, he's at the end of his rope. He will not give up. He will not give in. He will not ask for help. Unless you're willing to look in that mirror and get to that place of desperation, you will never come to Jesus because you won't need him. It's only when you look at this mirror that Samson is and he allow, and you, you look at yourself at, you know, through him and see, I am desperate. Any hope that I thought that I had of my goodness is now kicked out from under me. Only then when you are desperate will you fall on Jesus. And the good news is, is that he receives you. He embraces you. The great thing about the gospel A friend of mine put it this way. Uh, He says this, The gospel finally frees you to say, I am not okay. And it is okay that I'm not okay because Jesus makes it okay. A friend says, The gospel frees you to admit, I am not okay, but it's okay that I'm not okay because Jesus makes it okay. In other words, it is well with my soul that my soul is not well. The gospel of grace frees you to do that. Put down the pretense. Put down the masks, the masquerade. Only when you are in touch with the gospel of grace can you look at yourself with honesty and see your sin, see how messed up you are. But the beauty of grace is that when you finally become honest about yourself, it doesn't spiral you into depression. It launches you into joy. And it launches you into worship. Because you have a Savior that is that big. That's big enough to handle the mess that you are and the mess that I am. So that, so that is the invitation for you tonight. Will you be honest? Will you look in the mirror, the mirror that is Samson, get in touch with your desperation and fall at the, at the feet of a Savior that loves sinners? Let me pray. Father, we don't want to believe it. We believe that when we start being honest about our sin, that that's going to push you away. That that's actually the road to sadness. That when we confess our sin, that that, um, that's actually what jeopardizes our well-being. And Father, I pray only by your Holy Spirit and only by your grace, would you undo every instinct in us and free us to confess and to admit with radical honesty how prideful we are, how lustful we are, how greedy we are, how selfish we are, knowing that when we talk about ourselves in that way, it does not, it does not jeopardize our relationship with you, but we actually get to taste your grace that much, your grace is that much sweeter. Oh, Father, I, I would ask for the freedom in my life to, to kick out the crutches of all the things that I hide behind, all the things, all the ways that I try to convince myself I am not this messed up. Father, help me to see through my righteousness and to see it as filthy rags. And yet to know that I have a Savior that loves me and embraces me in ways I can never really comprehend. I pray that for myself. I pray that for uh, the lives of my friends here tonight. We have a great Savior uh, and a great need for a Savior. pray all this in Jesus' name.